You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In this episode, we talk to Elaine Chia. Elaine is CEO of City Recital Hall, one of Sydney's leading arts, entertainment and festival venues. It produces and hosts a diverse program of concerts and events, including opera, contemporary ensembles, to debates and festival events. Many people will know it's home to the likes of the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Music Aviva, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, but it also hosts flash mob choirs and thought-provoking talks. Elaine grew up in a predominantly Jewish community in Melbourne and had a talent for music, but was convinced by her family to pursue a proper job. She ended up studying architecture, but also worked a part-time job as an usher, where her introduction to the world of the arts was the Rocky Horror Picture Show. She has since worked in arts management with the Australian Youth Orchestra, Belvoir Street Theatre, Sydney Conservatorium of Music, AMEB, yes, the Musical Examinations Board, and then the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Elaine also joined the Australia Council for the Arts, where she oversaw the Australian representation at three Venice Biennales. She joined City Recital Hall as CEO in 2016. Thanks so much for joining us today, Elaine. It's a pleasure. So can we just tell listeners what is your current role and what is it exactly that you're responsible for? Um, I'm currently the CEO of City Recital Hall in Angel Place in Sydney. Um, and CEO, I guess, means um, I, I laughingly sort of say all duties that can't be delegated to others. But <laughs> in reality, for me, it's uh, it's leading a very, very dynamic team to manage City Recital Hall, which is the 1,200-seat um, concert venue in Sydney, as well as um, produce an annual program of concerts and events um, under our own artistic banner. And what does Lunar New Year mean to you? Well, as a Chinese Australian, um, uh, Lunar New Year is always very, uh, a very special time of the year because it's a chance to actually celebrate my Chinese and my Asian heritage um, uh, to proudly and openly. And it's always a most amazing time for family to come together, uh, for us to sort of see uh, so much of our culture on the streets and, you know, on airtime and feeling part of like a, a good chance to celebrate our, our heritage to the broader community. So where were you born then and where did you grow up? I was born in Hong Kong um, by circumstance. My um, parents were working there um, when I was born and um, I actually grew up in Melbourne. I came to Australia when I was four years old. What do you mean by circumstance? Were they not from Hong Kong? Uh, my uh, grandparents had an office in Hong Kong and uh, my father was working for a, 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 the family company. Um, but my grandparents actually, my grandmother was born in Australia. Um, her side of the family came over with a gold rush and my grandfather was sent to Australia as part of the family business and that's how he met my grandmother. So my father was actually born in Australia, um, but we were already back in Hong Kong working on the family, well, they were working on the family business when I was born. 
Right. So your grandmother was born in Australia. Your grandfather met her in Australia. Yes. And so you're, you are kind of like third generation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Almost. Um, th- there's always, there was a moment sort of many years ago when I was uh, little growing up and, um, you know, we, we sort of really never, as a kid, I think you never really think so much about your, you know, your, your history, your family history. It is just what it is. Um, and uh, I remember there was a, a, an SBS documentary on um, Chinatown, uh, Melbourne's Chinatown, and the museum. And all of a sudden, my grandmother, you know, there was photos coming up as part of the documentary. And my grandmother's going, Oh, that's your auntie, great auntie so and so. And I was like, Oh, really? So, you know, it was only when you sort of, I think, get older that you get more interested into your family. But, you know, my grandmother was one of 14. So there was, they were market gardeners, you know, with the market yeah. garden in Keelor. And, you know, my grandfather was this, you know, um, three piece suit businessman so <laughs> it was a real real melting pot when we got together because my my grandmother's side of the family spoke with really broad Australian accents um and my grandfather was very traditional and conservative yeah right so that's really interesting <laughs> because when you grew up in your very early years obviously in Hong Kong did you think of yourself as Australian but happened to be traveling there or did you think of yourself as of what Oh, <laughs> uh, to be honest, I mean, yeah, I, and and my brother has an amazing sort of um, you know philosophy on this, um, a take on you know what 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 it was like in Hong Kong. I mean, I, being four, I really remember very little of it. Mm. I know that when I came to Australia, I didn't speak a word of English, um, mm. and um, and uh, my brother believes that it's because in our formative years we learnt to think in Chinese. And so because we don't really speak Chinese much now, we've lost that part of our memory. <laughs> yeah, right. So you, you moved to, when you're four, to Melbourne. What was it like then growing up in Australia? Were, the, were you in an Asian community or, or not really? What was it like? Not at all. We were we were not anywhere um, close to an Asian community. So my 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 father actually, my my mum and dad got divorced, which was the reason that we actually moved back to, well, we moved to Australia um, because my grandparents brought me up, and because my grandmother, you know, and had been in Australia, they felt that, that was the best way to bring up two young children or grandchildren, and um, but we landed in Australia and my grandparents had bought a house in East St Kilda near Ripon Lee um, and we lived in a primarily Jewish um, area. Um, I went to an Anglican school. There were only there was only one other Chinese um, girl in my school um, until, you know, I got to about year 10. So and I started in primary school there. So uh, we were we were not really um, we didn't have any Asian friends. Um, it was really just, you know, family at those, you know, birthdays and, you know, Christmas gatherings and others that I actually saw other Asians. Yeah. So if you didn't have very many Asian friends when you were growing up, did you actually even think of yourself as different or not because you wouldn't have seen anything different, you know what I mean? Oh, I love that question, Valerie, because, you know, I didn't even register that I was different until I started, yeah. you know, um, really at school and uh, you, the older you get and the more independent that you think you are, that's when you start to, you know, experience, let's be honest, the racism and the discrimination. But, you know, I never thought I was any different until, you know, I, I had to be out on my own and, and experience the fact that people told me I was different because I looked different. 
Mm-mm. That is so true because I had no concept <laughs> that I look different because you don't walk around with a mirror, do you? No. Staring at yourself in the mirror. You just look at, you know, what you see. And, um, yeah, so I, I suppose lots of people have different experiences though. Now, you have had a storied career in the arts working in so many different um uh, organizations, cultural organizations, arts-related organizations. Um, have you always had an interest in the arts when you were growing up? Well, absolutely. So, you know, growing up in a Chinese family, um, and I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to this, that uh, you learn the piano or you have to learn a music instrument because, oh, yes. you know, that that's what you do. So I learned the piano. I, I actually graduated to the organ and I played the organ at church um, and, um, and I became um, music captain of my school. Uh, and was really loving, you know, having music in my life. Uh, and then my grandparents, uh, brought me, bought me a grand piano for my 16th birthday and then told me that I could not have a career in music because oh. I needed to be an accountant or a lawyer or, you know, I needed a real job and this was always going to oh. be a fantastic hobby, but that was it. So, <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I know, I know, but you know, you can understand that because, you know, they just, they want to make sure that everybody, you know, that, that their grandchildren have, you know, have, have a solid future. So, and I was never, you know, that brilliant that I could ever make a career as a concert pianist or anything like that. So, so that's fair enough. So um, I did the next best thing. I studied architecture. So right. I did a degree in interior architecture at RMIT um, because it was still, you know, understood as, you know, a career path. Mm-hmm. But whilst I was um, uh, at uni, or actually when it started at school, um, the theatre manager of the Princess Theatre in Melbourne was our next-door neighbour, and he's, he asked whether I'd be interested in having a casual job ushering at the theatre, and that's how I started while I was still at school because he could bring me home at night so it was safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I really got into the performing arts bug because the first show that I ever worked was the Rocky Horror Show. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, it was obviously so glamorous and, you know, just so outside of my, my immediately world. I never knew anything like this existed. So, no. um, and, and I was hooked and I, I kept that ushering job right throughout university. I ended up working for Cameron McIntosh in the heyday of Les Miserables and Phantom of the Opera. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I finished uni, um, Phantom of the Opera moved from Melbourne to Sydney and the company said, do you want to come along? And I was like, oh yeah, that was it. <laughs> Well, you've got you've been living my dream life. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I always say to my team, you can take you can take the ushering out of me, but it's always there. Like if I see someone who needs help with their ticket, even now as the CEO, I was like, oh, yes. can I help you now? That's your seat over there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you you had this part time gig and you were doing architecture. At what point did you think I'm going to really commit to building a career in arts management I guess um to be honest I never did to <laughs> really honest I never did I I I was probably um a person who was looking around having great fun because you know working in musical theater and in the theater it is like an extended family um everyone is almost like an orphan when you're on tour so you become each other's family and you know it's largely dysfunctional and it's you know but it's 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 the core group that you know that you're at home with. And so when I moved to Sydney, I, I thought that life was great. Um, and it literally it was one of the people that I was ushering with who offered me a four-week 
holiday, you know, fill-in role um, with the Australian Youth Orchestra. And um, I went, oh, I can do that during the day and I can, you know, work in the theatre at night. And that's actually how it started. I got a, a, a real job um, working in administration, um, answering the phones and stuffing envelopes for the Australian Youth Orchestra. And um, that's that's when it started. And I was like, oh, I actually know how to do this. And I really love, you know, the fact that I was back in music in a really direct way. Um, and I got to work with, you know, amazing young musicians. And um, that's when I knew that I really had the bug. Did you ever consider um, doing having a career more on the performance side? Because obviously you were music captain, you were obviously talented in music. Did you ever consider it on the other side? No, because... Um, to be honest, I mean, I you you really, I think, everyone needs to take their hat off to an artist. Um, it is such a dedicated career. Um, the hours of practice or the hours of honing your craft, whether you're a visual artist, a painter or a musician or an actor, learning your script, it looks so seamless during performance. But mm. I was really just never that committed. Um, I knew I didn't have it in me and um, my best role was to be able to support those artists to um, do their best and to, to, to have a performance at the end of it. Mm, I remember um, chatting to Sandra Yates once who has been on the board of, you know, the Sydney Writers Festival and Music mm -hmm. Aviva and so on, mm -hmm. and she was also a pianist and I think was at the Queensland Condor, Con or mm -hmm. somewhere, and she says, you come to the painful realisation that you're <laughs> merely very good <laughs> and then you're never going to make it as a concert pianist or whatever. But, okay, you got, you're at this, the Youth Orchestra. Can you just give us a potted history of your uh, career to this point, just so that we can get an idea of the organisations and roles that you've been in? Oh, wow. Okay. So I was at the opera. Uh, so I started the Australian Youth Orchestra. I, I ended up there within a year as the operations manager, managing their national music camp for 240 students um, and um, organising their tours. Um, and from there, I went. Um, I worked for a fashion designer for 18 months, which was my only job out of the arts, although you could, one could say it's still creative. Um, and uh, then I um, was really lucky to land a job at Belvoir Street Theatre as the business manager. And um, I was there at a time when Belvoir was going through an enormous sort of um, change because um, they really – it was my first show with Belvoir was Cloud Street. And I don't know for those oh, uh, wow. listeners, I mean, it was really – a pivotal moment in Belvoir's history and they've have, of course had many but this was one particular one and it really set Belvoir on a, a trajectory but for me the opportunity to work under the leadership of Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield was just I felt like I, that's where I grew up um, that's what I still tell everyone to this day that's when I really felt like I grew up it wasn't at uni or anything like that it was at Belvoir and I, I was there for a, a few years and then um, my previous um boss at the AYO in the meantime had moved to the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and she rang me up one day and said would you like to come here and work and I said oh no I'm pretty happy here and she said well this is what I can offer you and I was like oh that sounds really exciting so I <laughs> ended up moving to the Conservatorium of Music as the marketing and development manager 
um, and looking after their orchestras. So um, I had a very, very specific job description that perhaps not many people could fill. Um, but, um, but it, you know, obviously it was tailored for me and I'm, very, you know, very fortunate that that happened. And I was there um, working for three years on the redevelopment, the final stage of the redevelopment of the Conservatorium in Macquarie Street and worked on the reopening concerts. And um, after that, I think I was really done. And around that time, um, my grandfather was getting um, quite ill in Melbourne. So I decided to move back to Melbourne for a few years. And um, I I took on a role as acting CEO of the AMEB, the um, uh, Australian Music Examinations Board. They do all of the piano and other lessons. Oh, yes. Fond memories. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I'm sure there's there's lots. I mean, I think they do about 50,000 exams a year. So everybody can relate to that. And I remember Mm -hmm. laughingly said, I, is the CEO of the AMEB allowed to have only got to second grade piano? <laughs> but, uh, um, but uh, yeah, so that was a really wonderful role. Uh, and then um, I met the wonderful Leslie Orway, who is just a phenomenal mentor for me and a huge, um, you know, leader in the arts in Victoria. And she offered me a, dro- a role on the final stages of the redevelopment at Heidi Museum of Modern Art. And that was my first foray into visual arts. I bet I was the finance and, you know, manager, um, but I got to actually use my architecture sort of, you know, knowledge for the first time because I project managed the final stage of that redevelopment from the client point of view. And so I was like a pig in mud, you know, I get to, you know, work on plans and work on design and I'm working, you know, numbers was always, I'm Chinese, so numbers make sense, you know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not an accountant, but I'm really good with money, you know. So, yeah. um, so it was the best of all worlds um, around that time. And then um, I, I was offered a job back in Sydney and I hopped back to Sydney. And so I've moved around a lot around music and theatre and visual arts. And uh, it's just been a really amazing journey. And when you sort of, you know, look at that, and my last role before I came to the recital hall, um, I was working for the Australia Council for the Arts, the government arts agency, but I wasn't working in funding. I, I landed a job project managing the building of the new Australian pavilion in Venice and the Venice Biennale project. Um, so what an awesome working, job. I was working in Italy. He was a Chinese-Australian representing yeah. the Australian government in Italy. <laughs> Love it. What's been the proudest moment in your career or proudest project you've you've achieved? I think that that, that last one um, before I came to uh, City Recital Hall working, working at the Australian Pavilion I think was my absolute sort of defining moment um, that I would look at because I think for the first time in my life I looked at myself and went, you know, you can actually make an impact, Elaine. Like all the things that you do does mean something, but this is a really tangible legacy that I was able to work with a bunch of amazing supporters and contributors, but really to realise a physical building, you know, that is there for, you know, generations to come and enjoy the arts and it stands for something that is really Australian and I've never been prouder of a project. Oh, wow. What's been the most challenging thing that you've done? Definitely this this role <laughs> uh, oh, at City Recital Hall. At City Recital Hall. Why is that? This role. Uh, I think it's the mix of venue, um, managing a, a venue, and managing uh, the expectations of you know the hundred and seventy thousand plus 
visitors that come to the hall each year they and seeing all sorts of different types of concerts and events managing you know the thousands of artists that come through um the team the delivery and balancing all of that with saying well you know we still have to be a you know a sustainable organization we have to be so many things to so many people and this job has really, really stretched me in a way that, I, I mean, I thought I, you know, was really at the top of my game. And there are moments in, you know, in, in a day here where I'm, you know, dealing with broken lifts or, you know, we've run out of soap in the toilets or we don't have enough limes for the bar. Of course, I'm not dealing with all, but I, I hear it all, you know, and you yes. go, there's so many pieces of the puzzle to put together and people just walk in and expect it to be seamless. And that's exactly how it should be for them. Yes. So is it challenging because of the volume or because of the complexity? It's the volume and the churn, I think. When I when I worked um, in a theatre um, and, and at Belvoir Street Theatre, I mean, we obviously had our own venue and it was fine, but, you know, we, we had a season. When you work in visual arts and you're presenting an exhibition, you have a run of, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, three months. Here, we do two, 273 concerts and events a year. And, I mean, we don't produce and present them all ourselves a lot of them are hirers but you know the churn here is like one day you'll have a classic concert then you know the the crew come in at 11 o'clock after that concert finishes basically take apart all of that staging put in a new staging hang new lights and the next time you might have a jazz concert or you might have an you know something else so just the variety but the pace of it is really phenomenal at times yeah. So with um one of the things that you started doing at City Recital Hall, I believe was inspired by a text from your dentist. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's just weird. <laughs> it is weird and it's totally kooky and I would say to everyone, don't ever you know, go with your first cat feel. Um, so for many, um, in my first year, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time someone said, oh, where is Sydney, Sydney Recital Centre, City Recital Hall, what are you called? Um, you know, even though we've been here, it's 20 years next year since yeah. the building opened. But, you know, if you, if you didn't, uh, if you're not a classical music lover, you probably wouldn't know that we exist. So that's probably 95%, maybe 90% of Sydney. So I threw my hands up um, six months into the role and said, we should just rename ourselves Behind the Ivy. I think that's really logical <laughs> um, because then everyone would at least know where we are. Um, yeah. So we were really keen as a team to find a way to open our doors um, to people to discover us and make it non-transactional. That is, you didn't have to buy a ticket to come yeah. and enjoy this beautiful hall. And we tossed up a lot of ideas and, um, you know, uh, we were quite keen on um, calling a choir, but, you know, there's a huge um, number of community choirs around Sydney and they're all fantastic. And, you know, the model is you come in for a few weeks and you might do two or three concerts a year. I mean, we can't do that as a venue because, as I said, you know, we have so much churn. We never know, you know, we don't ever have, you know, every second Monday free or something or regular enough to actually do that. Mm. And so we've been tossing up the idea for a while and then literally I got a, an SMS, you know, one of those text message reminders from my dentist. And I said to my team, well, can we not call a choir via SMS? And they looked at me like, you know, I had two heads and went, 
Um, and how, why would people want to come, essentially? <laughs> and I said, oh, I don't really know. But, you know, maybe it's the spontaneity of the thing and people might just want to come. But if we make it really easy for them, that they don't have to um, RSVP and they can just ignore us or they can come with 10 people or whatever they want, that would be fine. So um, the next sort of point, once we decided that we'd give it a go, was to find someone to lead it. And um, so I picked up the phone to Richard Gill mm. and – um, I said, Richard, I've got this idea. He said, okay, I'll come in and have a listen. And he went, and so I told him the idea and he said, well, it sounds completely mad. Let's just try it. And that's exactly what we did. So, um, so we're, you know, two years on now and sadly Richard is no longer with us, but he's, mm. he did the first one with me. Um, and, um, we just had one, um, last night. Um, but, um, we now are at 9,000 people registered to receive the SMS. Wow. <laughs> we get somewhere around 900 to 1,000 people turn up each time to sing. <laughs> That's a pretty good hit rate. So people can basically register, you know, via your website, uh, which is which is what? Um, is cityrecitalhall.com. And they can then register and they'll get an SMS, which will just be a surprise. We're going to meet at this time to to sing in literally City's Recital it. Hall. That's amazing. That's and I think <laughs> getting 900,000 people is, is pretty good. All right. So um, you growing up Asian in Australia, has your cultural heritage ever been an asset in some cases, or has it been a hindrance in some cases? Um, I would say maybe I start first to say that I felt for many years that it was a hindrance, and I think that we, I mean, I suffer probably similarly to a lot of others that feel that um, there's not a lot of people of Asian Australian heritage in major leadership roles. And, you know, besides the gender, you know, um, conversation. And so, therefore, you're never quite sure whether people are going to view you firstly by, you know, how you look or your ability. And so, it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a chip on the shoulder that is really hard to displace. And, um, I'm sure you can relate to that as well, Valerie, that, you know, mm -hmm. it's something that you personally grapple with. But on the flip side of it, um, being Asian Australian and having been given the opportunity to have a voice and to make a difference through the arts um, is so empowering. Um, one role that I'm particularly proud of is that I am the chair of Contemporary Asian Australian Performance, which is a theatre company, the only professional company um, telling Asian Australian stories and uh, mainly through festivals and on the main stage. And the work that, um, you know, that, company does through Annette Shunwar, the um, executive producer is something that I feel is such a strong leadership role that I can contribute to as the chair with, with, the, with the board. Um, and we have to use it. We have to use it and we have to be proud of it. And the more we are proud of it, then, you know, there's going to be others who are going to follow What's your, you, you said that it's, you know, one of the things it does is telling Asian Australian stories. What is your definition or what how would you describe Asian Australian stories what are they to you oh it's everything from my, my story to new arrivals um you know Asian Asia the term Asia is you know so broad 
um, and um, we we should be as inclusive as possible. Um, but it could be a mix. It's like my Asian, you know, my my Chinese sort of heritage, but now I'm married to Italian. So it's this melting pot, and that should be celebrated in a way that you know can be done through the arts. But I I think that the, the more you try and define it, the the harder it is because you mm. don't want to be exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> now a lot of uh, people from Asian heritage are obsessed with food. A lot of people from Italian heritage are obsessed <laughs> with food. What are dinners like at your house? Ah, uh, dinners are <laughs> dinners are great. So. Uh, as I said, you know, growing up, I mean, you know, I grew up in a in a Chinese family, but Sundays were particularly, I think, is a great example of how my life was like. Uh, I Sunday morning, every Sunday morning, we would go to church, and when I got old enough, I'd play the organ at the church. After church, we'd go to Yum Cha, same restaurant, same table. We'd order the same food. Yep. After church and yum cha, we'd go home and my grandparents with my great aunt would sit around at the mahjong table and play mahjong all afternoon. And <laughs> during school holidays, I was allowed to join. And at about four o'clock, my grandmother would step away and she'd start in the kitchen and she'd cook either roast lamb or roast pork. Mm. <laughs> and so we had a totally, you know, English Sunday dinner with, you know, all of the, all of the, you know, mashed potato, roast potato and peas and everything else. So I thought that was normal. Um, so I've just brought that into, you know, my life now. We, we're so lucky in Australia. You know, who would ever think that you would eat the same cuisine, you know, for breakfast, lunch and dinner seven days a week? You know, it is, it is the choice of saying, well, you know, for example, when we have a big celebration, you might start with an Asian sort of starter and peking duck and I'll make spring rolls or I'll make my own dumplings and we might move into, you know, a risotto or pasta or, you know, paella or, yes. you know, it, it, yeah, the sky's the limit. I love it. All right, so with the Year of the Pig, what are you most looking forward to with the Year of the Pig? <laughs> the Year of the Pig is, uh, you know, I think it's, it's a year of uh, – it's a great, exciting year for me because it's the 20th anniversary of City Recital Hall. It's a time to reflect on it, heritage from from an arts point of view and of where I work, and um, and and a time to look towards the future. And um, I'm a rooster, so I'm not really mm. actually sure how a rooster relates to Year of the Pig, but um, you know, rooster years are not great with roosters and vice versa. So I think um, I'm just going to look forward and you know, uh, and, and um, hope that it is is a year of renewal. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, Elaine. Pleasure. It sounds like Elaine's home is a pretty great place to be if you like food. Elaine mentioned that she makes her own dumplings. Dumplings are pretty common these days, and Chinese dumplings are similar but not quite the same as the Japanese gyoza that you find in restaurants. Dumplings are especially popular during the time of Lunar New Year. The origin of dumplings is said to date back to the Northern Song Dynasty, where the currency at the time was known as jiaozi. It looked like shoe-shaped gold and silver ingots, and eating the similarly shaped dumplings is meant to bring prosperity and good luck. If you're not familiar with dumplings, they're made from a variety of ingredients, often with minced meat and very finely chopped veggies. This is wrapped in a thin dough skin. You'll also get fillings like minced pork and diced shrimp and chicken and vegetables and so on. They can be cooked by boiling or steaming or frying or baking. 
Some legends say that rich families would add gold or silver or other precious stones as ingredients inside the dumplings, and to get to one of these dumplings was considered good luck. Later, of course, when coins came into use, this became adding coins into the dumplings, and the person who gets the coin would supposedly have good luck in the coming year and make lots of money. These days, I'm pretty sure that none of the dumplings you'll eat will have anything of the sort, but they're certainly still just as tasty. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo, and you can connect with me at ValerieKoo, that's K-H-O-O dot com. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and any of the links I've just mentioned, just go to newstories.net.au.